When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Looking for the best sports coverage on the web? Then check out the Dan Patrick Show on Podcast One Sportsnet. Join the sportscaster Monday through Friday as he covers the biggest games all year long with a whole bunch of A-list guests from the world of sports and entertainment. Download new episodes of the Dan Patrick Show every week, only on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of The Athletic, and had a really fun conversation. Ethan has been, he was one of the first, I believe he was the second or third guest on Real GM Radio, had him on a lot throughout the years. And we start out talking about title contenders. We end up having an extended conversation about the Warriors offseason, something he and I haven't really discussed at all this offseason. So it was fun to have that conversation on the air. And then we got into talent evaluation, rule changes, a whole bunch of other stuff. A great conversation. I love talking with Ethan. Conversation is brought to you by betonline.ag. You can use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Conversation runs a little bit less than an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me, Danny. We're about a month into the July part of the offseason. Of course, there was a lot before with the draft and all the moves that happened before July 1st, which was significant this year. And there, there's a lot of a ground that we could cover, but I think where I wanted to start was really how you're seeing the title picture right now, kind of like who you're seeing as the teams. Maybe they're not there now, you know, because obviously there's a lot that can change between now and June 1st. But who are you kind of seeing as as the front runners in that mix? Wow, it really seems to me like the Clippers and everybody else. But if there's something wrong with Paul George's shoulders, I mean, hey, both of us, we like to watch some baseball. You know, maybe we're a couple of uh, regular seam heads, you and I, Danny. I don't know. But people who follow baseball know in baseball, they deal with shoulder injuries more than any other sport. And the word on it from the experts, as far as I can see, is nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's very unpredictable. So I think there's a good chance that maybe Paul George isn't what we remember him as. And there's also a good chance that he is. And so that's the big, you know, that's that's the big dividing line for the season, I think, in many ways, because the Clippers roster is just better than everybody else's roster. Uh, would you would you agree with that particular premise? I think so. When I was so last week, I had Matt Moore on and we were doing tiers. And what I ended up with as my kind of my top group, it was a real challenge, though, because I'm kind of sitting there. Do I want to separate out too many things? Do I want to do that? And and for me, yeah, the Clippers were ahead. I had I actually ended up with the Lakers in that tier as well. But that was more just my belief in playoff LeBron. You know, playoff LeBron is still really mm-hmm. good. And then, and then I had the Bucks. So I think my current my current feeling is that even without Brogdon, who missed a fair portion of last regular season, I yeah. think the Bucks are good, are are probably my favorites to to have the best regular season record. That is not necessarily mm-hmm. definitive in terms of anything other than having home court. But yeah. with the Clippers, their, their roster to me, like not only does it does it make some sense, like I can put together five man lineups that I like. But what makes the Clippers a little bit different from some of the other teams that are really talented is that they have a greater capacity to make modifications from this point. So something that I've been leaning on for dunked on since it happened was that deliberately, it sounds like, the Clippers did kept the flexibility to trade their 2020 first round pick. Like so they moved a bunch of picks further off in the future, and, and that's a downside for them because they're better now than they probably will be then. So, you know, trading a 2025 is very different from a 2020. But what that allows them to do, especially with all these contracts that they have on their books, is take some time, see what's working, see what isn't, and find out what's happening with Paul George's shoulder, all those sorts of things. 
Whereas, and, and, and make a move. So that could be any number of salaries. Like, I mean, they also have got holdover guys like Harrell and Lou Williams. They could move those guys in trades or use them as, as key pieces of the team. And that's not tr- as true for the Lakers. They gave up a lot of assets. They also gave up basically every young player on their team. And the Bucks have given up picks over the last couple of years. They picked one up in the Brogdon thing as well. But I think the Clippers have the most flexibility. And that gets into something that I think is really interesting right now, which is that I, I do agree with you that I like the Clippers better, but I think the margin, especially with kind of the next group, you could throw the Rockets mm-hmm. in there, you could throw a lot of the Sixers, a lot of other teams, is that I think they're the the mix is the term that I've been using before. I think the mix is closer now than before. And yeah. so that has a couple of different a couple of different import, pieces of importance. One is that just means that any expe- anything that defies expectations, positive or negative, is going to have a greater import. This isn't, you know, like, let's say when the Warriors are two steps ahead of everybody else. So if somebody else is a step faster than we thought they were going to be, they're still behind. Mm. And, and then the other part is that means in-season adjustments and improvements and all that are more important because you're getting closer or further away at a margin that actually matters. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm mulling that. I'm thinking that one over um, as you say that. Uh, because uh, the big question I think is going to be attached to this is where are the Warriors in that particular mix? And we, we will get to that. Um, but yeah, I think if we're just going by tiers, we've got a situation in both conferences where we've got the obvious favorite, right? I think Clippers and then in the East Bucks, you would hold above the others. Although, you know, Sixers, you could make an argument, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, you really could make an argument with the Sixers, even if it doesn't seem to be a team where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, they they damn near beat the uh, last season's champions uh, last year, and that was before adding Al Horford. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's effectively the scenario. I, I would not put the Lakers on the same tier as the Clippers. I'm just big on perimeter defense, especially for the playoffs, um, and I just don't. I don't see the Lakers as having any. And hey, I could be wrong. Maybe the star power of LeBron and Anthony Davis and that pick and roll just conquers all. Uh, but I, I don't see it. I just don't see that roster as having the versatility needed to win four rounds in the postseason. I just don't see it happening. They're also putting a lot defensively. As as the team is currently constructed, as we talked about, that can change. The Lakers are putting a lot on LeBron and AD shoulders defensively, and I think that's an yeah. underappreciated part of what's going on there is that you know they added a lot of perimeter players and they added some intriguing, talented def- centers, but they're not defensive centers, really. They're not they're like DeMarcus Cousins is he's not the type of center that can kind of clean up messes and everything like that. And you can also get into the potential ramifications of spacing, though I think Cousins will be a much better shooter in 1920 than he was in 1819 for a bunch of different reasons. But what the Lakers, I think what you were getting at in terms of versatility is that they don't have that look, you know, like that five-man lineup that I think makes a ton of sense against the Clippers. And that's a really interesting difference between the Lakers and the Sixers. Because while yeah. I have some issues with, you know, the Sixers crunch time offense and they like, I mean, they relied so much on Jimmy last year. And while I love Josh Richardson, he's not the same type of guy. And are they going to run the type of offense that can really make Al Horford's impact felt? They did a, you know, the Sixers had some really intriguing personnel stuff against a lot of the different teams they faced. I thought they did a nice job at, at a lot of moments against the Raptors too. They didn't, they didn't face the Bucks, but think about how they've kind of made this combination amalgamation, if you will, of a team that already had a lot of pieces theoretically to defend Giannis. And then you add in Al Horford, who I thought, other than Kawhi, did the best job defending Giannis of anybody in the East playoffs. And And it also has this other sneaky aspect where then Embiid doesn't have to deal with him anymore. Right, exactly. (laughs) And and so and so and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, Brett Brown basically has I mean, there will be other teams that step up to be sure, but Brett Brown has a lot of time to think about that Eastern Conference Finals. And one of the elements that I would be looking at really heavily, and it's a hard thing to do, but I would be thinking about trying to find a place to put Joel Embiid kind of like they did with Pascal Siakam that is on neither Brook Lopez nor Giannis. And if they can do that, if they can, let's say, put Ben Simmons on Brook Lopez or something like that, 
then this gets really interesting because then yeah. they can, and I'm not sure the Bucks have the horses to make all that work. I mean, George Hill can hit some shots, but if that series comes down to George Hill hitting a bunch of shots, it you know it's kind of like Tinny Green sometimes. It absolutely yeah. could happen, but it could not. And if as Milwaukee, if that's what it comes down to, you're a little bit queasy. I would I would agree with that. Um, I guess the dumb guys take on why the Clippers are a standard deviation beyond everybody else light years ahead if if if, if, you know if you will is just maybe we look at whatever team is wingiest when the wing when the wing is the most prized player in the nba maybe whichever team is wingiest is is obviously the favorite you know the warriors when they have kevin durant clay and andre you know and now i mean this is just an embarrassment of wing riches when you just look at the uh the clipper roster um and then you 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 know you're started off with paul george and Kawhi leonard it's just so nice to have elite wings in the nba at this point in time a storyline yeah well a storyline that's going to run through this season and i mean the whether it's temporary or permanent to an extent demise of the warriors is going to be a part of this is the overwhelming pressure, and the Houston Rockets are the single best example of this, has been defensively that you need to be able to switch. You need to be able to to have versatile guys that can at least hold their own. You know, that's sort of an archetype. And with the Warriors, at least for the interim, not being that team, one of the questions that I've had is whether the league has to be. I think there's always a benefit to really good wings because they're, they're harder to defend. There aren't as many players that can do it. But maybe the league is it doesn't have the same urgency of being switchy, of being wing-centric mm. as before. Now, that does not mean the Clippers are you know ill-fitting or ill-suited or anything like that, but it might be a little bit of a different pressure now. It might be. It might be. I'm thinking about it. Um, I mean, look, it would be boring to say the Clippers are just going to win the championship. That's how I feel. I just feel... And, all if everybody is healthy, the Clippers will win the NBA championship. That is that is my take. And then from there, injuries will obviously shake up that snow globe. But that's where I'm at now. The one to try to figure out that's in our backyard. I don't know how to fit the Warriors into this conversation because I've got the sense that if I'm going by my rule of wings are great, if I'm going by my rule based on doing the uh, Strauss versus the house and doing the NBA gambling, and I have to say I was a little bit proud. A little bit proud of the results in, in all of that. Um, I'll permit myself that moment of self-regard. Uh, it seemed like perimeter defense was the market inefficiency, the thing that maybe wasn't so accurately measured. But if you knew the game well enough, you knew its impact and its influence. And the Warriors have lost so much of their perimeter defense. So should we be shorting the Warriors? Should we be having them below expectations going into this upcoming season? Yes, I, 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 I think that's I think that's a big part of it. Now, okay, next next let's, topic. Well, let's 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 split it into two. Yeah. Offensively, I think the Warriors could be great again, and Steph Curry is incredible. They will have less shooting, you know, and, and especially now there's always been this pressure, and I understand it that to have Draymond play power forward in the regular season because it puts more wear on him to play center, but also that's going to happen even more now because the Warriors don't have the wings to play him at center. They don't have Andre yeah. Godala. They don't have Kevin Durant. So that's a part of what, how, what made Draymond at center possible. And it's basically impossible now unless some of these young guys really, really step up. So offensively, Steph Curry is going to have to be the dynamo, especially because Klay Thompson's missing a bunch of the season. How much is is an interesting question. I, I don't have a good answer on that. I've heard a few different things over the course of it, but I, I don't have my I don't have my ear to the ground right now on that point. And if you do and want to share, you can't. Let, let, let's bring this into the context, not of the win totals, but in, into the title odds and the playoffs. Sure. Let's zoom. Clay comes back. They make the playoffs, and Clay is Clay, and he's the the Clay Thompson of old. Let's just okay. So so then pursue, now we're having a, now we're having yeah. an interesting conversation. One one challenge there is that the Warriors, for the first time in a long time, three of their best players are shooting guard size or smaller, and yeah. that brings defensive problems. Now, even if the offensive fit works, and it very well could, like I think I think people are they're underselling the possibility that D'Angelo Russell just works offensively. Now, will it work yeah. defensively? Probably not. 
And so bringing back Looney is extremely important for the Warriors' defense and their identity. And so if you have Draymond, Looney, and Klay Thompson on the floor at the same time, I think those moments, they won't be necessarily as transcendent as the Warriors have been at their best. And the Warriors' defense is such an important part of their success over these last five years. But once you get outside of those three individuals, the pickings get really, really Mm -hmm. slim in terms of even just above average defenders. Like Curry's not bad. But he's, you know, there. McKinney, I've, I believe, is has been intensely overrated defensively. Like he, I mean, Kerr has more confidence in him than I would have to be sure. And there were times that, you know, it hurt them in the playoffs. Not that it cost them a series or anything silly like that. Yeah. And he's got a weird. It, it, it seemed like he actually could do okay against some, uh, some of the smaller dynamic players. You know that he would wind up on Lillard and he would, he would hold his own and be pretty good, but. When faced with Kawhi, he was just getting ragdolled. That was just something he could not do. So I think the issue with McKinney, and and this could change with development and everything else, is that he's just quite not enough for that kind of a rarefied error. So he's not strong enough to deal with the strong guys. He's not quick enough to deal with the quick guys. And he's not insanely, like, he doesn't have the basketball IQ to cover in those gaps. Because there a player, you know, like older Andre Guadalla didn't have the speed part of that, but he was so damn smart, he could end up just, like, getting from A to B. Yeah. You know, like that sort of thing. McKinney, not at that level, not a not a a slight on him or anything like that it's just extremely rare and it seems in some ways that the warriors have prioritized mckinney over damian lee um in terms of giving mckinney an assured spot and not so much with lee i'm not sure uh how that saga will end or it might have ended by the time this podcast is out um but i'm i'm very pro damian lee i know this is the fringy the fringe of the roster right but i just look at lee and i go okay he hits 40% from three and yeah you could say there weren't too many games last season but you know in the G League that's also what he did um I didn't hate him defensively you know maybe I'm missing something but when I was watching he didn't seem he didn't seem bad and so it's confusing to me that he's not more integrated into the roster and he's the best he can hope for is a two-way so that's another scattered thought on, on the roster yeah, I don't love Lee defensively, but I do agree that the margin between those two players is more narrow. And then so that ties in with what you're saying. And then the the guys that the Warriors brought in, the newcomers, Colley Stein has never really been that attentive a defender. He has the physical tools. I mean, I loved him as a defensive prospect going back to when he was at Kentucky. Pascal, Smilagic, those guys are going to take some time. It, that's just found money. I mean, if they're if they, ro- yeah, if they're exactly. NBA if they're NBA rotation players, then if they're if they can yeah. not even if they're rotation players, if they can like periodically give you five minutes, that's a huge found money. I mean, rookies are generally terrible like that's that's the way this works especially second round picks and then pool not not the defense is not necessarily we, a strength can we, for him. By the way, can we stop comparing everybody to draymond green I, I just you know i'm sure hey maybe pascal will have a good career maybe he'll crack a rotation but he's not that he's not going to be that there they're, he draymond's a little sui generous there aren't right a lot well, of people there, that. it's an important point that it is not a good idea to compare a player to an outlier unless they in unless they exhibit all of the characteristics that made that outlier successful. Now, so that means for Draymond, intelligence, activity, the quickness for his size, his length and wingspan. And so I don't think it, I don't think anybody should be compared to him until we see all of those things in the same person. Yeah. Because most of the people who are like Draymond Green fail because they are not Draymond Green. It's yes. the same thing with players all over. And and this gets into like I mean I remember back in the day when Michael Red wasn't a great shooter. I think that was when he was in college. Maybe it was early in his pro career. And then he got a lot better. And then everybody goes, "Oh, everybody who doesn't have a jump shot is going to learn how to shoot." No, some players who don't have a jump shot will eventually learn how to shoot. Most of them will not. There are far more Michael Kidd Gilchrists than there are Michael Reds. That's the way yeah. this works. And at a certain point in time, general managers in particular, coaches too, you have to choose an imperfection. And I understand that. But there's a difference between choosing an imperfection, dealing with it, masking it, trying to improve it, 
and thinking that it's going to be resolved because it's you know you can draft somebody hoping that they're the next Draymond Green and, and by all means you you can do that but planning on it and I'm not saying the Warriors did because who would but that's where you start to get into the real problems and I think like Andrew Wiggins is a pretty good example of this like the idea that mm. oh he's going to be all of these things like a you know maybe like a number one score or a lead defender and as of right now it could change but as of right now he is none of those things and so that affects how you build moving forward. And uh, another example of that is when teams don't draft at a position, they don't draft, let's say, the best prospect available because they think they have the answer at that position. And then it turns out that guy wasn't. I mean, Phoenix's point guard situation is a good example of that. They, you know, they didn't draft De'Aaron Fox, possibly partially because they thought they had somebody in-house. And then, like like Eric Bledsoe, now the point guards are gone. Now they got Ricky Rubio, but they all their point guards were gone, and De'Aaron Fox is awesome. I, I just, and look, I'm, I'm not saying that I scouted Eric Pascal and watched all his games, but I'm just looking at it statistically. He just doesn't have the steal and block rates of college Draymond. He just doesn't. And that's a pretty big part of what makes that guy who he is are those robot devil hands where he can just wrench the ball away from people and the anticipation. So maybe he can space the floor and and, and do some things and maybe he gets a rotation spot. I'm, I'm not trying to say that I'm I'm incredibly negative. I just don't know. I don't know. I just know that. I know that comparison. I've heard a lot where every team was looking for the next Draymond Green, and there's only one. There's only one. And maybe people made that comparison with Pascal Siakam, but even there, I mean, he's he's an awesome player in his own dynamic kind of way uh, with just a different body type um, and, and whatnot. And people only started saying that about him when he was starting to have success. Uh, I just, to what you're saying, it just doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like the model, but I guess we've gotten far afield. The, the, the topic at hand was that the Warriors, uh, pretty slim pickings outside the main core of things. And I mean, maybe one of these guys will pop in an unusual way. It might speak to Steph Curry's incredible powers that if you're with him you can get open shots and he can generate offense for you and maybe somebody like a a Jordan Poole will look a lot uh better than we could reasonably expect from a rookie um I don't know there's certainly reasons to doubt I was talking to basketball people who thought that uh the Michigan coach um god why am I drawing a blank on his name B Beeline he's now the Cavs coach now the Cavs coach, go Bears, uh, that shows you where my brain is, has tended to make players look better than they actually are. And some busts have come out of Michigan uh, for that reason. And so maybe that's a reason for concern. I also, it, you know what's funny is that Jordan Poole's stats look a lot like Pat McCaw's college stats. So just take that for what it's worth. Maybe nothing, but that's that was also interesting to me. Hmm. Let me look up well, those so, stats. Well, so... Still plenty to talk about with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, but first message from BetOnline.ag. Summer action continues to heat up in Major League Baseball, and there are big UFC fights around the corner, and we're only two weeks away from the NFL preseason. Yeah, two weeks away from football. So there's only one place that has you covered, and that's BetOnline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at BetOnline.ag and use the promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% welcome bonus. A lot going on in baseball right now. The, the Blue Bloods, the Yankees and Dodgers, are doing really well. I'm happy that the Giants have have pushed up in the last little bit. And baseball, the fun of it can be that it's so persistent, it's so prevalent, it's so present. And so if you're, you know, you have a free afternoon and there's a game on, you can make it significantly more interesting with betonline.ag. Or if it's your team and you're going to be watching it no matter what, then you can amp it up a little bit. And you don't need to sit on the sidelines anymore. You can get in on the action. And if you do, please use that promo code PODCAST1. Alternatively, you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669. Either way, you can get that 50% welcome bonus. Also tells them, of course, that you came from us. So with MLB action heating up, UFC 240 this weekend, get in on all the action at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. I want to pose a question to you. I'm actually working on two pieces on this point, and it's I think it's it's such an interesting question to 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 deal with. And so the Warriors, once they knew or understood or whatever that Kevin Durant was going to be gone, and uh, Marcus has a nice piece on this. Obviously, you've been talking about this possibility for some period of time and generated a slight response. But uh-huh. the basically what, what happened from what it appears to me is that the Warriors front office made the decision that the way to 
rebound from Kevin Durant's departure was that they wanted to have a high-profile, high-salary player on the roster. And there yeah. is a there is a rationale for it because it's a lot hard. It's a lot harder. I, okay, so let's get into this because I'm interested in this because Nate seemed very negative. It's why people love Nate. It's why people follow him. Is that he is not going to he's not going to give you a lot of BS hedges. He's going to give you his opinion. It's going to be well thought out. Um, and he was very negative on this. Um, do you break with Nate in your negativity about the acquisition of Russell? Okay, I will. I will give. I will give a longer answer and then explain it. So, okay. So here is the here is the rationale. The rationale. So I'm I'm writing a piece. I'm writing the case for and the case against Russell. I'm writing both pieces right mm-hmm. now for the Athletic. They'll probably come out next week. Um. The, so the case for it is it is incredibly hard to add talented players at high salaries as a capped out team that doesn't really have anybody with bird rights that you want to spend on. So basically, and that could be they want to have Russell himself. Maybe they have high hopes for it. We've heard Bob Myers talk about that. Or it could be that they want to turn Russell into something else. Either of those things is significantly easier to do with a high-priced player. So if you want to bring in somebody making $30 million, or you want to bring in somebody making even 20 it's a lot easier to do that with D'Angelo Russell on your books rather than some of the other stuff. Also, there isn't the same time pressure that there would have been theoretically, let's say, using Andre Iguodala for that purpose because Iguodala is an expiring contract. So can't do that next year unless it's a sign-and-trade and all that gets into a whole other can of worms. But... So you have that. Mm. I understand that rationale, and I think that rationale is incorrect. I think that it is because of what the Warriors gave up to do it. So if in the abstract it had cost them nothing to get Russell, absolutely worthy gamble. But that isn't what it cost them. It cost them Andre Guadalla, either two first-round picks or a first-round pick and a a couple of seconds. It, It really depends on what happens with that Brooklyn one. It also cost them being hard-capped, and that meant losing basically every free agent but Clay and Looney. So, I mean, one of those things that they get lost in the shuffle is if the Warriors hadn't hard-capped themselves, they could have brought back DeMarcus Cousins. And I'm not saying Cousins is is a cure-all, but like he would have been a— a much he would have been a really good player it wouldn't have affected anything with I Looney. think this is where I differ with Nate and and you I just don't think I think the Cousins story had run out sure I, I, I think, think that's I think that's I, I don't think they wanted I don't think they wanted Cousins it, back it also they they would have been able to use the presumably in that case it would have been the taxpayer mid-level exception they could have been they could have been more aggressive in terms of like you know a bunch of little things on the margins that they think they could have done and also they wouldn't have been had needed to be so aggressive going after after second round picks this year like the Warriors gave up over the course of this offseason and yes you can make an argument that Warriors second round picks aren't that valuable we'll see how good they are three four years from now maybe they become more valuable I believe the number is that they gave up either four or five second round picks in the future this offseason alone Mm-hmm. And that's a lot. And there, even though every one of those is not particularly high leverage, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be that that's the next dream on green or anything silly like that. But they're they're very small bites at the apple that they won't have. Also, they gave up all their cash for this year, which is was one of the ways that they could have reshuffled like Houston did last year. So I've used I've used the phrase before actually comes from the movie The Girl Next Door of is the juice worth the squeeze? And I think it's just a difference in evaluation. My answer is that D'Angelo Russell is not worth what they sacrificed. And Bob Myers' analysis is that he is. And it's a tricky question because is it that he's worth what they sacrificed or is the perception of him that they can trade to get someone else worth what they sacrificed? And it seems like the question is more that latter question, even as the team tries to insist that they have no intention of trading him, which nobody believes. Right. And Russell is paid a lot of money. So there and I do think that there is a parallel here with with Harrison Barnes, interestingly enough, that a player who has a strong pedigree and that achieved some success early in his career in, in incumbency, we will call it well, no, yeah. not, not just incumbency, but also that those players, their constituency as big or as small as it can be, depending on the player, it, it's a little bit more firm. And so yeah. let's say D'Angelo Russell has a weaker than expected year on the Warriors, which is far from guaranteed. But let's say it happens. Some of the people who have thought D'Angelo Russell is great, maybe some of the people who were happy, who thought that he deserved to make the All-Star game, all that kind of stuff. Those people, I wouldn't be surprised if they could write this off as he's not doing the role that he would be for us. You know, like it went with Brooklyn, especially because Karis LeVert got hurt for so much of the year. He was 
not the alpha and the omega, but pretty close to that a lot of times for the Nets. That's how he put up the counting stats and everything else. And on the Warriors, other than when Curry's not on the floor, Russell won't have that opportunity. And so, but, but let's, like, I think I was talking about this with somebody and they were, they wanted me to lay out like a, what I, what I thought would be like a reasonable, but not super optimistic potential trade package for him on July 7th, 2020. And what I said was, well, we already know Minnesota was interested in him. Jeff so, Teague and Covington. Well, Jeff Teague wouldn't be, wouldn't be available in July, oh, yeah. but like, let's say yeah, Josh, yeah, yeah, Ak- yeah. let's That's say Josh Akogi and Covington. Yeah. It was, I wonder, can you get the salaries to match given, I mean, yeah. I think I think you could get close enough. I mean, they could throw and because at that point the Warriors wouldn't be hard capped, so then they could throw in filler yeah. or somebody like Jang. There there are lots of ways that it could get done. But yeah. so so let's say theoretically that's let's say theoretically the pri- the primary assets coming back are Okogi, Robert Covington, and if you want to throw in something small, but those are the two best things coming back. Is that worth at least one first round pick, probably two, and the the marginal difference. However, we're seeing that of a year of D'Angelo Russell and a year of Andre Iguodala, and being hard capped and all the other marginal roster things. You know what's funny is that probably probably not is the answer to your question, and I don't think the Warriors would do that too because that's not that's not what they're in the game for. That's not why they did this, right? Um, but I love. Are, are you Covington. are you about to share a, a longer last name? Is that what's what's coming? <laughs> a longer last name? Are you talking about three names? Is that what you're talking about? Um, yeah, I I I love Covington as a player. I think if we get back to the wings, I think those players win, and they. I don't know if they're undervalued by managers, but I mean, I think Covington's a better player than D'Angelo Russell right now. Um, all you know establishing that Russell's quite young and who knows what will happen in his career. And really that's something the Warriors need. They, they, they badly need, I mean, Covington could be their, their Andre. Maybe he wouldn't do all that Andre did for them, but um, in a way there would be a lot of positivity to such a deal. Uh, but that's not why the Warriors did this. The Warriors did it so they could go big game hunting. You know, they did it so they could, I believe, you know, I don't want to get aggregated or maybe I do. I don't know. Um, they want maybe one of these situations where the superstar asks out and wants out, and they've at least got something to give the team uh, with the unhappy superstar. You know, maybe, and I'm just getting hypothetical here. Let's say Embiid and Ben Simmons, it just still isn't clicking, it still isn't working. Um, you know, the Sixers feel like they've got to move on. Uh, Embiid, for as great as he is, he's got the health issues. They're concerned about it. They want to go with Simmons going forward. Maybe the Warriors can step up and say, hey, we've got this guy for you. I think those salaries match, right? I'm trying to think I think they're I think they're close enough that you wouldn't need a bunch of you wouldn't need a bunch of complications there. Yeah. And look, I'm sure that there are there are a bunch of Sixers fans listening right now rending garments because that's the last thing they would want to do is give up and bead for D'Angelo Russell. I mean, Embiid's such a better player, but you know, you don't know, you don't know what could happen. You don't know who's unhappy and who wants out, um, and how it all goes. So I think what that, that the Russell move is about is having that chip to get the other chip. That's, that's what they're in it for. It is. And maybe that they're thinking about Giannis as well, or any, any number of other people that could potentially be on the market over the next few years. Yeah. The, the challenge there is that, and there are a bunch of different examples of this over the last few years, because we've actually seen a lot of high-profile players get traded over the last well, few years. Well, the challenge is they don't have that bevy of first-rounders exactly. to offer. Like, yeah, I, which, so, so, which GMs love, because then they can string their their tenure along yeah, and along. The mystery it box go. can be anything, and it's even better yeah. if the mystery box doesn't open for three years. Yes. Like that, that can work super well. So I get the rationale of wanting to wanting to be in the conversation because it's true that if the Warriors hadn't gotten Russell, they pretty much would not have been because it would have been functionally possible for them to get there unless they did certain other things really, really quickly. However, my my form of pragmatism with this is that being in the conversation doesn't matter that much unless there's a reasonable chance that you're going to get picked. And I think that's where the problem is because not only do the warrior they're they're just asset poor. 
and that's it, that's not a like a, I'm not going to slay the front office for that, even though there were some missteps that led to it, like missing on first round picks and everything else. But uh, unless your team decides that they would rather have Demar Derozan than than good young players, and Jakob Pertl is good, of course. But yeah. if unless the, unless you happen to get in those circumstances, and the Warriors could benefit from that because Russell has that pedigree, has made an All Star game, all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, it's a big gamble on whether they can make Russell look like an All Star. I mean, that's that's sure. kind of what they need to have happen because hey, maybe these GMs like we're talking about, they want to expand their tenure and they want to do what Presti did. But they're not the one who ultimately calls the shots. The imperious, impetuous uh, owner is the one who does that. And so, hey, if Russell's balling, or it seems like he is according to the counting stats. By the way, I just sounded really stiff when I said balling. But let's let's just you know set that aside. But if Russell is out there and he's putting up numbers, I'm sure that there's an owner who goes, I want that guy, and it might not even matter. Uh, that you you don't have the assets, so I'm just thinking about that. But that's a big risk of whether you can do that or not, or you know, make him an all star. I should say. Yeah, it is, and I mean, as a, as a point of reference, D'Angelo Russell is about the same age as Ben Simmons. I think they're a couple months apart. Yeah, I mean, and if you think that uh, Devin Booker's good, I mean, there are people who disagree on that. Well, you think Robert Sarver is not going to overreact to D'Angelo Russell playing really well <laughs> for a month? You think that's not going to happen? That could happen. So, look, it's it's a big it's a big risk. And then we get into the evaluation of Russell. And look, I have no doubt that he could put up counting stats. I, I, I do wonder about his game just a bit. You know, the question that I posed on the Warriors plus minus is what is the elite thing that he does? That kind of worries me if we're trying to count from the Warriors perspective, if you're trying to count on him becoming a star or a superstar. You would at least like him to have an elite thing that he builds his game around. And maybe in your assessments, you can tell me what that thing is. But so far, I haven't had anybody tell me what that thing is. He's he's a good shooter. He's not a great shooter, right? He's not a shooter like Dame is. He's not a shooter like Steph is. So what's the thing? What's the thing that makes him uh, skyrocket to stardom? I would say Russell's best attribute is that he is a very adept pick and roll operator, especially if the other team, and some would argue exclusively, if the other team doesn't switch. Doesn't switch. Yeah. Because, but but even that is just describing a tendency. Like, what well, is the he's skill? A, he's a yeah. good he's a good passer. He's a capable ball handler. In those circumstances, he gets enough space for his jump shot. It's as you said, it's not at the Dame level, but it is it is something that teams can respect. And I mean, it is kind of insane that even with Russell shooting thirty seven percent from three last year and seventy eight percent from the line, he still had <laughs> below average true shooting, which is just kind yeah. of incredible. Part of that is because he doesn't get to the line that much. Well, for the great, get to the, the great shooting. Shooters, I'm sure there are exceptions for the great shooters. It, it is funny that the free throws are a bit of a tell. Isn't that odd? But it seems like if you're a great shooter, you're at least up in the 80s with, I guess, a few exceptions. You know, it, it is this weird tell of how great a three-point shooter you often are uh, at, at the free throw line when nobody's there. And it's just a funny quirk to the game, to, well, to my eyes. There's another element of, to it, and that is that you get to shoot a lot more free throws, and so it's less prone. Also, because of the structure of them, they're less prone to the variation that three-pointers are. You know, three-pointers, maybe maybe your three-pointers happen to be more aggressively contested, and you only took, I mean, Russell last year, he took a lot. He had a high volume. He, he took 635 threes last year. But, yeah. you know, like that, that's a lot. But most guys don't get that sort of an opportunity. And so then a few misses, a few, you know, like cold nights or whatever it is, or or a few hot nights and you just keep shooting and they keep going in, then that can lead to a number that's really different. And what Russell does, which I think could be useful for the Warriors, is you have to, like, and this I think is going to be something I talk about a lot this year, and it'll be interesting with Brandon Ingram on a different team this year, is there is, an, there is a value, and Pelton has written about this well, Tom Haberstroh has written about this well, there is a value to taking shots even if they don't go in all the time. You know, taking three-pointers, yeah. making making teams respect it, making teams get out there. And I think there is an overvaluation by some front offices, but more by fans, of 
high field goal percentage, low volume three point shooters. Because mm. really, what it boils down to is you could. It's it's actually one of those elements that is so much easier to think about as a basketball player. Which is if this guy gets the ball in the corner, how freaked out are you? And yeah. if it's a reluctant shooter, you're not as freaked out as if it's a pretty good shooter that is going to take that shot. And so then you're going to close out harder, and then that leads to either they take the shot or maybe they can do a couple dribbles, create something else. And so this could be Justice Winslow. It could be Brandon Ingram. It could be any number of guys. And and some of those players, maybe they just they go from being high effectiveness, low volume, to being high effectiveness, moderate, or high volume. Awesome. Solves the problem. No, no beef. But if it goes any way other than that, it becomes a bigger problem. And what's good about Russell is he he's pretty high he's high effectiveness thirty seven percent no problem with that whatsoever, and he's high volume and he did a lot of it self created or at least largely self created. So I think that could end up working out well for the Warriors, especially during the time that Clay is unavailable. But even after that, I mean, thinking about how it's going to work when you three of your best players are you know two of them are six foot three, six foot four, and smaller is. By the way, how weird is it that D'Angelo Russell has a post-up game? That series is just odd. Well, he's, <laughs> he, he has some interesting skills. I mean, like, I remember what I, that he threw some passes that I absolutely loved when he was at, a, at Ohio State. Oh, in college? State. Oh, it's yeah. so fun to watch. And, and, yeah. his, and his handle, it's not, you know, it's not at that elite, elite level, but he, he, can get some, he can get some separation. It's just that he's not, and this is another thing that I think I'm going to, is end up going to be a, a big story that I'm going to watch this year is, how good of an athlete are you relative to your competition? And I think that's really, so I, I've had different people talk to me about various players and saying like, why don't you think they're going to be great or any number of things? And for me, if a player is not elite or close to it athletically, they're going to have to be really, really good at at least one other thing, but likely two, in order to be a a dominant player. Because really, we're talking about that. Like you can be a solid NBA player without great athleticism, not a problem at all, especially if you're smart. Like, Reddick is a great example of that, and Reddick uses his activity level and his intelligence and his incredible jump shot, like all those sorts of things. And like, Steph is, I, I, I think he's, he's an underrated, like, kind of the, the other elements, like Luka Doncic is this way, like the other elements that aren't considered athleticism because we consider athleticism like running and jumping, yeah. but he, coordination and all that, like, those guys are really good at that. But Curry has a great handle and he's the best jump shooter of all time. So that's how you get around it. Russell, just like it, it, there's this weird parallel with like overall value if you can't shoot. It's like you have to be really good at almost everything else. Like and and so I think those thresholds are going to be a real challenge for Russell, but they're also going to be less prevalent on the Warriors because they have some other players around him that could cover up some of it. I think so too. I think it's a gamble on Steph's ability to make things easier for for Russell. And there's a big downside risk. I mean, look, I, I didn't hear anything bad about Russell coming out of Brooklyn. I, I talked to Jared Dudley recently. Um, we'll have that up on the uh, the athletic um, soon enough. Um, he had he had nice things to say. But you give a young guy that level of money, you don't know what he's going to be like the next season. You just don't know. You know, if it's it's a bad situation if you're a few months into it and Russell isn't hitting shots and he's not playing well defensively and Kerr is benching him. You know, th- there is a significant downside risk to this deal. I am more positive on it. I do think that you need the chip to stay in the game. Um, I do think that you could potentially leverage one of these teams into doing this deal if uh, if Russell really pops. I'm, I'm more positive on it than negative on it, but I, I will freely admit that there there is a substantial amount of risk here. And it gets into an important element of our jobs, and I mean, we could throw Nate in here and anything else, which is understanding that there there are individuals in positions of importance who have different opinions on talent than we do. So if the general managers of the NBA were 30 people who thought the way I did, this would be a terrible move because – even though D'Angelo Russell, me too, me too. Me too. By the way, me too. I would throw myself like, in like there. Yeah. There and that is, you know, Russell has a lot of ways that he can improve. I, I mean, I had him second in his draft class for a reason. I he is. I, I'm far more positive on him than somebody like Andrew Wiggins because he's more capable with the ball in his hands, all that kind of stuff. But that's not the way this works, and that's part of what makes it so much fun. Is that some teams can look at 
what Terry Rozier did and say, okay, we can, we can build from that. Let's give him $18 million a year. And all it really takes for this to work out, whether it was the right decision or not, is one or two general managers really liking D'Angelo Russell. And there's a pretty good chance of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, owners still like counting stats and they still overrule their GMs. <laughs> I mean, there is well, something and there are GMs that. that like D'Angelo Russell too. Like it, it, it is, yeah. it can be either one and yeah. general managers, their goal is in most circumstances is to keep their job because it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to get a new job yeah. as a general manager than to keep the one you have. And yeah. as we might be seeing in some way, other capacities right now. By the way, for, for Quirk's a true shooting, I didn't know that uh, that Trey Young had a better true shooting by a whisper than D'Angelo Russell last last year, which is kind of well, amazing and, considering and how, how poorly, poorly Young, yeah, how poorly he started. That's 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 well, rather incredible. Trey Young was was really good towards the end of the year, and there's also an important difference between those two, and that Trey Young is a very adept foul drawer. Yeah, and and a guy who shoots over eighty percent from the foul line, which represents his actual shooting ability, in many ways. But yes, you right, say. and and so getting to the free throw line beyond all of the other spillover benefits, getting guys in foul trouble, and maybe screwing with the coach's equilibrium and minutes and all that, they're easier ways to get points. And it it it's hard sometimes. And players have gotten a lot better. I, th- I think Lillard has gotten better getting to the foul line. Steph Curry has gotten better. A lot of these guards, you know, it's it's a part of the game that that's evolved. I think Chris Paul, you know, he was more talented. I would say off the top of my head at the beginning of his career, but he improved at it too. Russ was kind of always a bowling ball from whatever call, so it wasn't as much yeah. of an issue for him. And maybe Russell, you know, he is only 23 at this point. Maybe he gets better at that with time, but he's starting from a very different place. You would think he would be better at it just from being a lefty that you could, uh, th- that there is a herky jerk awkwardness. Oh, that that's right. I'm going to get, a, I'm going to get at least probably one year of you talking about talking about a lefty point guard. I'd forget yeah, about that. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in handedness. That's always something that's interested me. How so many of our presidents have been left-handed. I'm personally not left-handed, but I personally uh, am, wonder- and maybe that's oh. why I find it less interesting. <laughs> it's just very normative to you, perhaps. I suppose. Um, well, maybe that's weird thing, maybe like- that's why James Harden doesn't do as well in the postseason as people might expect, because just a lot of uh, there, there, there's a level of what he does that's you know really mostly about him being incredible about basketball but there there's just an emphasis in the playoffs of this guy is left-handed we all have to remember that but you were saying no th- i actually think there's something material to that and mm. it it gets at this idea that novelty isn't as much of an advantage in the playoffs yeah and and so that could be matt moore i think has phrased this well like he, he had this thing a couple of years ago about how he thought the celtics were really going to disappoint in the playoffs i think that was not the year they made the conference finals it was the year before that because he called them tryhards and basically we didn't mean it as a criticism he's just like one of their best strengths is that they play hard and they play smart those are much smaller. That, that's the, the jarks feel that's the jarks theory on uh, chris paul not having the playoff success that people might have wanted that, from him. That could be as well San Antonio sometimes because execution is such a big part of their game and they can do it against anybody. And so it wouldn't surprise me if players who have novelty as a – where novelty is more of a strength for them than it is for other people. And it's far from the only reason. I mean Harden's incredible. Yeah. It's far from the only reason he's successful, but it helps. I mean I th- yeah, I'm pretty sure it, it, it helps. would just be funny to me because we're, we're so convinced that he – doesn't have the free throw rate in the playoffs that he does in the regular season because the refs are swallowing their whistle in the playoffs. What if it's not that? And it's just that teams aren't as surprised by the novelty of his game and the way he draws fouls as a left-handed player. I, I'm not sure, but I'm just throwing it out there. It's probably I, the swallowing the whistles. <laughs> it, it, pro- it, prob- it probably is, but I mean, any any player, any team that succeeds in an unusual way or through something like, I mean, I've talked, why I like the tryhard things that, as Matt Moore said is because effort equalizes or gets closer to it in the playoffs. And so it just becomes less of a competitive advantage. And yeah. the novelty of, you know, the go-go Kings, theoretically, like if the Kings make the playoffs, I think some of that stuff will tone down as well. And I mean, I, I would love to see the Kings play well enough where they make the playoffs, but those sorts of, and it's not like, I, I don't want to use the word gimmicky because gimmicky puts a negative connotation and i do not think that should exist if that is your best way to succeed and you succeed that way more power to you i mean it's funny now i think about russell conjugations you know the not d'angelo russell but bertrand russell of uh that 
they're synonyms that evoke emotional opposites. You've worked in politics, obviously in politics, it's huge. You know, I am firm, you are stubborn, right? Um, I'm sure there could be a Russell conjugation for whatever gimmick is because gimmick sounds rather pejorative, but maybe it's just something that is uh, unusual unconventional. unconventional. Yeah, unconventional because the use of gimmick has always been interesting to me. It, 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 it sort of indicates a level of smoke and mirrors, which is interesting well, that, considering I, that a, a great yeah. a great way of talking about that, not to, to hijack your point, is zone defense. I mean, yeah. I, I think that there are. It was there so. Are, it was. It was so. It was a janky defense. The box and one in sure. the finals, except Nick Nurse knew what the hell he was doing, and it was right. the smart thing to do. <laughs> right, and, and <laughs> it ultimately ended the finals. And zone defenses. I, I there's if for those who are interested in this, I did a podcast with Jared Dubin midseason because he wrote that good piece about zone defenses, and so we did a like a 25 minute segment talking about it. And what intrigues me so much intellectually about it is that it there's kind of this weird parallel to something that's happened happened in college football for a long time, which was like teams were doing these gimmicky offenses, and I always wondered like what would happen if you did it with actual good players. And mm, some yeah. defenses, yeah, there is this element, and they they can be exploited. And I mean, we saw some of that in the playoffs when certain teams went to it. But when you have the right personnel and it's drilled well enough and the players know what they're doing, they can be incredibly destructive. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it in the regular season. And it doesn't have to just be, oh, the team is bad. And like Miami got into that point where they were doing it when they were having trouble communicating. But like Toronto is a great example of this. And they have personnel that works last year, especially that worked really well for man to man. It works really well for zone. If you can put Pascal Siakam at the top and his activity level and he's messing with everything else and you have enough length everywhere, you can, you can do it. And especially if it's as a change of pace and so can write it off and, and maybe it isn't what you go to as your base defense in the NBA finals. Maybe it is, but it can work for those pieces. And I don't think there's like, there shouldn't be any smugness or, you know, condescension for trying something unusual, especially if your players are drilled into it and, and understand what they're doing. Because yeah, there, there's work. something strange. There's something strange with sports that way, where the pro leagues want to believe that certain things would not work at their level because they're such a cut above, as you referenced with college football versus pro football. And I'm not so convinced. You know, I'm not so convinced that. Um, at the professional level, there's such a chasm that these strategies wouldn't wouldn't work. I'd I'd like to see it tried. I'd like to see it happen. It, it seems to me that when people know something well, as they typically do at the professional level, they are afraid of of trying new things. You know, if, uh, people like Pat Riley and Rudy Tomjanovich, I believe, were trying to uh, fight fight the uh, push to remove illegal defense from the NBA back when that happened. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of these strategies could work. I'm big into that. I like speculating on what's going to be the next thing that might change the league. Um, I'm sure if Manny Ginobili showed up in the NBA when he showed up and told people, hey, I'm going to do this thing where instead of taking two steps of the ball, I zigzag it instead. You know, I just go side to side with the two steps. I'm sure he would have been told that that's not going to work in this league, but he just did it and it worked tremendously. And now it's called the Eurostep and we see everybody doing it. So, yeah, I think that there could be more innovation down the road. Um, and I guess a lot of the innovation is probably going to be tried at lower levels before we see it in the pros. Yeah. And I also hope that we can see more facilitation, not necessarily of that, but just getting some of the other stuff out of the game. I mean, you were the first person I heard talk about that the easiest way to clear up what Nate and I call Euro fouls, you know, intentional fouls to stop fast breaks is to just make it an intent call. So if you yeah. are intentionally fouling to stop a fast break, then it's oh, a free throw. A, then it's a free, a, it's a free throw and, and you get the ball or two free throws in the ball, whatever it needs to be to, to stop the this behavior. This is a tangent, but this is a big problem across sports, which is removing the power from the referee. And maybe that's counterintuitive since a lot of people rage at the refs and they don't want them having more power. I don't think the solution is to try to make them into robots who need to call everything by the letter. I like thinking of them as a judge where the judge has some leeway, some discretion. It's not a three strikes law situation. You don't have a mandatory minimum. You you, you have this professional. You, you have them look at the situation and go, okay, um, you were meaning 
to muck up that fast break. I saw it happen. That's what you were trying to do. Now you could respond, hey, how does the ref read minds? How does he know the intent? I don't I don't care. I don't care. We know what that looks like. We know what it looks like when a guy grabs a guy to try to prevent the fast break. I am fully happy with just giving the ref the power to determine that rather than the current insane system where they go to a video review and try to see if one guy's shoe was in front of the other guy's shoe and suddenly you're bogging the game down specifically in service of reform that's meant to prevent the bogging down of the game. It's completely crazy and could just be solved by giving the refs the discretion. While we're on easy fixes that somehow haven't happened that you and I have been talking about for at least a half decade, yeah, why are heaves still counted as field goal attempts? It, it's dumb. It makes no sense. I mean, look, you there still is, have— There is zero benefit. There is zero—they are incredibly fun. It creates yeah. randomness, and, and we've each had players talk to us candidly and say, if they didn't count, I would take more of them. Yeah, if you're Quinn Cook, you know, do you, do you really want to take any hits to your field goal percentage? I it's it's look, what we want are stats to accurately reflect what's happening on the court. That's not a real shot attempt. And you see it become part of the narrative sometimes. I've seen it happen with Steph Curry where he'll have, you know, maybe two heaves in a game and then the reaction will be that he shot poorly and it's not really incorporated. So people will respond to the statistics and you know, it's, look, it's interesting that Steph and Luka Doncic, uh, you know, like it's cool that they're willing to take a hit to their stats to do that. And it's part of maybe some greater morality tale of those guys and what they're about. But I think we want to see more heaves and we're not benefiting from seeing fewer of them. And it's such an easy fix. Why other than inertia? It's just it's an easy fix. If it happens behind the half court line, it's not a standard field goal attempt. Boom. Done. Why not? Yeah, and as you talked, as you brought up, it, I don't think people understand how much it filters in because it could be something as basic as Steph Curry was shooting two of seven from three, but it was really two of five. Yeah, yeah, it's a big swing. That's it's a big swing. And, and you think about all of the all of the enjoyment. It, this goes along with the, I mean, the the clear path thing. It does. It it goes. It kind of double on that because you you take out this enjoyment that you could create for basically no consequence. You know, the time it doesn't it doesn't impact the length of the TV timeouts or anything else. It's just a way to a way to add a little bit of fun randomness to it. And the the biggest reason why I support, you know, changing the Euro foul, the intentional foul to stop a fast break is that it would make the game faster and it's more fun. Like I, one of the definitive moments of this for me was one of the first NBA games I ever attended. And this, again, it's a reminder of how I got into basketball late was my freshman year of college was LeBron's first year in the NBA. And I went because I couldn't afford to go to a Lakers game. I went to the Clippers. I went, I saw LeBron play the Clippers at Staples and you know, that crowd was mostly there to see LeBron. It was a Clippers game when the Clippers were pretty bad. And LeBron had the ball on a fast break and got fouled. I wish I remembered by who. And the refs called it, and the fans just booed relentlessly Mm. because they wanted to see LeBron dunk. And you're not only are you taking away the exciting part, but that wasn't a clear path or anything like that because we were 10 years away from that existing. But it it doesn't, it, it takes away something great and it adds time that is boring. So just make it because if the idea is that if you make the punishment strong enough and quick enough, then players just aren't going to do it anymore. And so then you just you dunk and you go down the court. It could actually like it could it could affect scoring numbers and a whole bunch of other interesting stuff. And what cracked me up was that's happened a few other times in the past. And remember that Clippers one where the fans were booing. That was the home crowd ostensibly that was booing. It happened again. And I cracked up really hard to Zion. Zion mm. got the ball in that like one quarter that he played in Vegas mm. and he was going to rumble down and somebody fouled him as you know was the correct decision for that player which is why you have to change the rules and the crowd just booed mercilessly and it's like why why are you incentivizing something that the fans don't like you know, and it's not like it creates some better well, competitive balance or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. I, I appreciate that the NBA is open to reforms. I feel that they always go about it in a bizarre half measure kind of way where rather than – look, the obvious fix that you need is uh, to just shorten the season. It's like, OK, so maybe let's add this 
uh, wacky tournament in the no, like you need to just shorten the season. That's what needs to happen. I know it's painful, but that's what has to happen. There's no there's no real workaround to that. It seems that that always happens with the NBA, and then they do reforms that I never even asked for. I don't want replay review. I don't need replay review. I remember the 1990s. I don't want to sound like an old man. But we didn't have replay review, and we were were fine. We were fine. We lived. Once Reggie Miller shot a a, a playoff buzzer beater, and uh, honestly, it was after the buzzer. Um, And it went in, and it was counted. And uh, we all lived. We all lived. It, nothing. It was. It wasn't so bad. I'm sure that I can't even remember the opponent. It might have been the Nets. Maybe that's why nobody cared. But you know, I'm sure they weren't happy. The other team. But you know, sometimes there are mistakes. Sometimes there are errors. And I think we do damage to the game when we stop it as it's happening. When we make perfect the enemy of the good. Um, and then it's doubly confusing when you can see all these reforms that wouldn't have any cost that they don't do. It's just frustrating, Danny. Well, there's so much more that you and I could end up talking about, but I know that you are that you are a busy man enjoying the off season. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Danny. Anytime. You do an incredible job. And uh, yeah, thank you. I don't have a good outro to that other than thanks. Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can listen to the House of Strauss podcast, of course, which is also on The Athletic. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Sherwood Strauss. H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. Love having him on. And I actually have a pretty good idea of the next two months of Real Jam Radio. I've been, since I got back from vacation, I've been lining up guests and working through the way the calendar needs to work. So I'm pretty well settled until close to the start of the upcoming seasons. That's pretty exciting, though. If something comes up, I will absolutely cover it here. Can also, of course, be on Dunked On. Nate and I are still going a few times a week now, and then he'll start doing some of the team-specific stuff. But we, of course, will jump in there if anything props in as well. So you can do that. My written work will still be at The Athletic, just like Ethan's. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. This show runs once a week, every week, all the way through the year. So you can subscribe, download every episode. Very important. You can also spread the word if there was a specific episode or if you think people would like the show, however you see fit. And leaving a rating, leaving a review is along those same lines. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not. If you want to be super awesome, you can leave a review both places. The single best way to help out this show and any other one that has them is to check out our advertisers, betonline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't always respond. I'm a little bit better this time of year, but I will read it. That's exceedingly important to me. I don't want to waste your time. And that can be feedback on the show, could be guest ideas, and a lot of things do come from that. So feel free to share. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 